Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Hi, Michelle Martin. Welcome to Money and Me, the show for you investors where we believe your money should work harder than you have to. Square, a payments platform, has purchased 50 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin. It's part of a larger investment in cryptocurrency. It says it believes Bitcoin has the potential to become a more ubiquitous currency of the future. Investor Ray Dalio says cash is not safe. So where should you be parking your money if you're looking for value? Goldman Sachs sees the S&P 500 as undervalued and suggests that the stock market faces a potential decline ahead of the U.S. selection. What does this mean for the V-shaped recovery? When can we expect to see stability in markets? And Carl Icahn. Gotta love Carl Icahn, 84 years old. Most people still retired, but he's still working. He says, I work all day. Don't ask me why. <laughs> Got a lot of deals going on. and must like the action. Okay, so Carl Icahn um, believes that the energy sector will rebound in time, not immediately, not overnight. He's not suggesting that you buy energy stocks. But what does Jack Cousy think of this specific subsector? We turn now to the Director of Strategy at the VFS Group. Joining us all the way from Australia, we hope it's phone line's good today. How are you, Jack? Waste, trying to say my phone line hasn't been good before. <laughs> we have had um, some shows where we've had trouble, Jack. Really? Open up with a criticism. Good morning. <laughs> it's great to see you again. I hope my phone line's clear. I'm excited. I'm happy. Uh, sounding I'm loud and story. clear. Oh, don't be a crabby this Monday, Jack. It's good to have you on. All right, let's talk about Square's investment in Bitcoin. So Square's purchased $50 million in Bitcoin, part of a larger investment in the cryptocurrency. Square's bought a total of 4,709 Bitcoins, but that's just about 1% of its total assets. Now, Square says, here's the interesting bit, that Bitcoin has the potential to be a more ubiquitous currency in the future. It believes it's an instrument of economic empowerment and could provide a way for the world to participate in a global monetary system. Now, it sounds like the kind of rah-rah that we heard uh, when cryptocurrency was introduced right at the beginning, right? That it was going to be inclusive, you know, that it was going to pave the way for less third party and, and more people to be included in the financial system. What do you make of Square's investment in Bitcoin and should we be doing the same? Yeah, um... So I think there are two two sides to, to what's happening here. One, it's a bit of a surprise, but then it's not a surprise. I mean, Jack Dorsey, the CEO, has been a big believer in cryptocurrency and in Bitcoin. And I kind of fits into the mold of where Square's kind of trying to do. You know, they're trying to disrupt the banking system. They're trying to disrupt the payment system. It fits really well in terms of their cash app, you know, which is growing really, really exponentially in the U.S. and now moving around the world. Mm. So that part of it, I think, um, you know, was in the line with the playbook of where or what Square does. Uh, in terms of cryptocurrency, I mean, I've got to tell you, Michelle, I'm, I'm a fan of the sector. Mm. Um, I'm a fan of what Bitcoin does. You know, it's supposed to disrupt. Uh, it's supposed to, again, you know, bring people into the payment sector that don't necessarily have a bank account. So... When we talk about the RARA, and I'll talk just about cryptocurrency and then I'll go to about Square. When we talk about the RARA, it's hard to call Bitcoin and, you know, mainly the top five or top ten of these cryptocurrencies are fad anymore. They've been around for 10 years. They've got a market cap of 200, you know, nearly $300 billion. And when we look at Bitcoin wallets, they continue to increase. So 
I'm of the belief now that a broad portfolio should have a small element invested in some of these cryptocurrencies. And, and in my opinion, it's not advice. I wouldn't go outside, you know, the top five or ten that we see around. So you're talking about your Bitcoins, your Ethereum's, your Ripples, um, etc. So I think this is just a growing space. If you again look at what Bitcoin wallets are doing, they're growing every single month, month on month, and they're especially growing in that younger demographic, which is kind of, you know, the, the boost of economic growth that we're seeing around the world, around this market. So, you know, again, a big move by Square. But when you talk about Square, this is a company that is really on the cutting edge, um, really changing the way we think about how we use money, not only in terms of payments, but integrating on the business side. So, you know, I go around Australia, I see a lot more Square um, uh, podiums or white things coming up. They're integrating on that merchant site. They're accumulating a lot of data about what these merchants do. And they're kind of similar to what we saw out of the big ones like Alibaba and Meishuan in China. They're accumulating this merchant data and they're able to do things with, you know, credit tech or insure tech, you know, uh, facilitate loans to these businesses. So this is a market cap of $83 billion, but a remarkable company. And I think is just going from high to high. Uh, and this just fits into that, that mold that they, they played out for themselves. So interesting and um you know, surprising but not surprising at the same time. But there are two elements to this. One, which mm. is a great company, mm-hmm. and two, it's just making cryptocurrency a little bit more, you know, in the forward and in the news going forward. Yeah, it does. But what role really does Bitcoin fulfill in terms of its role as an asset? I mean, do you really believe it is as good a store of value, as good as gold even now? Yeah, I mean, the, the question is, uh, well, let's look at what crypto- cryptocurrency does, right? So it's on a blockchain it's immutable, you can't hack it, it's a good store of wealth, you can transfer it very easily. Mm. You know, it's very difficult to say some of those things about money or the banking system that we have. I'm going to touch a little bit on what Ray Dalio's, you know, just said in in your opening interest. Mm. So, and we talk about bank accounts around the world. Now, it is getting easier to get a, get a bank account, but there are still billions of people that don't have access to digital money or money in order to facilitate or become part of the global economy. And cryptocurrency and Bitcoin has facilitated some of that. And I go back to my, my point start. You can't call, um, let me, let me start with it. There are about, there are thousands of coins out there. Mm. I can safely tell you that thousands of them are rubbish, right? But when we talk about some of these five or six best projects that you're seeing, and they're mainly about that bigger market cap, they are doing things like, you know, digital ID, digital storage of wealth that will fit into the digital world that we're going into. So I do believe it's of value, um, and I do believe that you know Bitcoin will continue to rise over the next two to three years, in my opinion. Yeah, so it could have a central role to play. We're talking about financial innovation and decentralized finance moving ahead. Yep. All right, let's talk about Ray Dalio's ideas. It's not the first time he's you know uh, warned about cash. We know that famous line, cash is trash. He's come out to say cash is not safe. It's not a safe investment. He says, I think there's an instinct to think cash is the lowest risk asset because it has less volatility and because we look mm-hmm. at everything through the lens of cash, but yeah. that we we have to shift this now with so much money printing and debt accumulation. So when he says that we should be looking at diversification and not just holding on to Dalio, uh, what what can the retail investor take from that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, God bless Ray Ray. We love Ray Ray. Who am I to doubt Ray Ray? Does he live in Singapore, by the way? I did he? I think so. He might. I think so. Wow. 
Let's move on. <laughs> Look, I'll have to check up- on that because if so, he's coming on my show. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know. We might do a joint session. You leave him there. I mean, Ray's got some valid points there. He has been a permanent bear for quite a long time. But I think in the broad context of what he was saying is he was talking about, you know, bondholders receiving negative um, real and nominal interest rates on their cash and whether that type of investment was a valid type of investment in this type of world. And he brings a very good point. You know, we're talking about $17 trillion worth of debt that's yielding something uh, of a negative. Mm. You know, even cash in your normal bank account doesn't get you what it used to five or 10 years ago. So you have to look at other asset classes in order to generate, you know, some type of return in that kind of safety mechanism that cash gives you. So, you know, we often hear retail investors often hear the word Tina. You know, there's no other place other than equities. And that's because of the yield on cash. So because you're yielding so badly on cash at a bank, mm. you want to put it somewhere else uh, when you can put it. And part of the gold rally that we've seen in the last two to three years is, again, in relation to the interest you're getting on cash. So, you know, often you would choose between cash or gold and cash would be a better play because you would get interest-bearing money. Now, when cash doesn't give you so much interest, your opportunity cost of holding gold suddenly becomes, you know, more valuable, such such you've seen a a move into into precious metals. Now, if you feel that, you know, and he also talked about the weakness of the U.S. dollar and the printing of the money, uh, of of money out of the Fed there and why that's decreasing that asset class. So as an investor, if you're bearish on that role or in that play, you need to look to other stores of investment that give you some type of safety mechanism and don't give you volatility. So, you know, government bonds, I think, are still a good area in some places to get you that type of yield. Mm. I think gold is something that you want to have. You know, I've, I've talked to you about gold a few times, how I've missed the whole gold trade, but I do believe that now, particularly in this environment that we are, having an allocation to gold and precious metals is a good form of hedging against any market volatility in your portfolio. So, you know, he does bring up a valid point uh, at this point in time, but it's very hard for the investor Mm. when they're yielding nothing and they're seeing markets do what they've done for quite a long time, not to be tempted to put it in towards equity markets, which continue to rally, which continue to show strength, uh, regardless of the volatility that we're seeing in markets. So a, a valid point and a valid point about what we've been seeing from the U.S. dollar, which has been, you know, the U.S. dollar has strengthened in the last couple of weeks, but has been quite weak for the last three to four months. Well, Ray Ray is always on the money, I have to say. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of property prices? You know, here in Singapore, we're seeing a lot of overseas investors trying to guard their wealth, parking their money. We're seeing a huge dial-up in, in the number of landed transactions. And I'm just curious, are you, are you seeing anything like that over in Australia? Yeah, you're seeing that across the world. It's a very interesting point that you bring up, Michelle. So, you know, normally when we come into a crisis like we had, so let's talk about the pre-GFC crisis and coming out, you normally see property prices around the world come off, right? Mm. We actually haven't seen that around the world. We've actually seen property prices go up. We're talking about, you know, areas in the U.S., even here in Australia in some parts, we're continuing to see that. And it's quite a, it's quite a, a dilemma that we're seeing. So, you know, I think people aren't selling their properties as much as they used to, so there's less of a supply in markets going on. It's seen as maybe a bit of a safety asset as against equities to, to guard against the pandemic. And that's a really interesting point we're seeing around property, which we haven't seen pre-crisis. We haven't seen that fall in global pro- property markets across the globe post-COVID. Now, whether we're going to see that in the next 6 to 12 months as the real pain starts to get to the market, we may or may not see. But with interest rates so low, 
um, and money being so free, this may be an asset class that people continue to drive into. The other phenomenon that we're possibly seeing in front of us in terms of property is maybe the de-urbanization of cities around the world. So, you know, we used to congregate um, in terms of ourselves. We used to start living on top of each other in terms of mega cities. The working from home may be uh, de-urbanizing us. So you might see suburban areas really start to rise as people look to awards um, bigger homes where they can entertain and work out of. And that is a really interesting conundrum that we see post-COVID, the reaction of property, and more importantly, what we're going to see in the next six, six or 12 months out of property markets. It's one that I'm actually watching very, very closely. So I'm glad you asked. Fantastic insights there, Jack. Thank you. Jack Cousy is Director of Strategy at VFS Group. So last week, Jack, was the best week for U.S. markets in about three months. We saw investors really liking the small caps. The Russell 2000 jumping more than 6%. Blue chips tech stocks rising upwards of 3 to 4%. But Goldman Sachs, looking ahead, says the stock market could face the possibility of significant declines ahead of the U.S. election because of the unpredictability factor. The S&P 500 index it believes is modestly undervalued based on expectations of corporate profit growth and accommodative U.S. Uh, Fed policy action. So what do you think of this idea of a significant pullback just ahead of the elections? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me about the election. So we could talk about the election today. It's, it's going to be incredible. I think we talked about it last month when I was on your show and I said, you know, buckle up. Um, we're, in, we're in for a volatile ride here. And in the last two to three weeks have been incredible. Um, let's first talk about the first part of your question and talk about the strength of markets last week. So it was, it was a great week for markets um, in terms of all areas. And we saw uh, global mega tech rally. Um, we saw small caps rally. We really saw a broad race. And we actually saw value rallies, so the cyclical reflationary trade we talk about that's constantly in the question of when are we going to move towards that. So we even saw airlines and industrials rally. Now, we've got to remember we did come off the worst week in September since 2011 in markets. So there was a little bit of a catch-up going forward. At the moment, things look pretty good going into the election, but I think we're going to see some considerable volatility. Now, when we talk about Goldman Sachs' warning of considerable downside, we've got to think what's ahead of us in markets over the next four to six weeks. So we still have a global pandemic in the background, and we kind of seem to forgot that in markets at this point in time. I'm looking at... You know, rates in the U.S., I think I saw this morning they're at two and a half months high in terms of, you know, the virus spiking. So we've still got that. We've still got the reopening trade that's up and down. We've still got global borders around the world are still closed. And we've still got a volatile relationship between the U.S. and China to deal with. Um, then we have the possibility of no stimulus leading into the election. I don't think they're going to get a deal done. That is my opinion. It's been my opinion for a couple of months of that maybe uh, lead to a little bit of volatility. But then we have the big question is, what's going to happen to the largest economy in the world, the largest democracy in the world, leading into probably the hardest-fought election in U.S. history? And I think that's the real question sitting on people's minds. Now, let me, let me, paraphrase, let me, let me talk about this. I believe that a Biden victory or a Trump victory gives you benefits and disadvantages to the market. I don't think any single part uh, is, you know, any detrimentally bad to a market. You know, Trump brings lower tax for corporations. He continues to cut red tape. That should help PEs for the next four years. 
When you talk about Biden, yes, you're going to increase taxes, which should dampen PEs, but that may be offset by the reduction of tariffs and a more palatable relationship with China, which should open up more trade and more growth, which should have company balance sheets. So, you know, I think they wake themselves up at this point in time. You know, Biden will be better for, for certain sectors and Trump will be better for other sectors. The real question that the market is struggling with this specific point in time, and, and a bit of a lesson for your viewers out there, the market can deal with certainty, right? It can take the Biden presidency and move on with it. It can take the Trump presidency and move on with it. What it doesn't want is uncertainty. And I think the biggest considerable downside we see to markets right now is not a Republican victory or a Democrat victory, but a contested victory. Mm. Um, and, and that's the issue that we're seeing. Now, you know, whether you get, you know, I don't know, a win in Florida for, for, for Trump on, on, on the night, yet then he loses Wisconsin, then he loses Ohio, then he loses Pennsylvania in the days after, and we're suddenly in the courts, that could be a real issue. We're also dealing with a president that we've never seen in global history. What he does in between that time, again, could add pressure. And we're also dealing with a Democrat party that's very charged up, that's very emotional, that really wants to win. What they do in the days after, should the Republicans declare a victory, again, may add that weight. So what I am believing is happening at the market is we're seeing this rally into it, but I believe we're going to get some extreme volatility leading into the election and then days after election, particularly if we don't have a clear result. Now, if it's a clear result, I think the market takes it, it grabs it, and it moves on, and it, you know, with benefit sectors that it believes will benefit from, from, from the winner. So that's the biggest thing hanging over markets. I will say that the point of a disputed election, I think, is actually decreasing as we go. And I'll just give you some more insight on it, and I'll finish here, is I think Trump has to win Florida. And if he doesn't win Florida, he doesn't win the election, in my opinion. Um, and we will know, from all counts, what the result of Florida will be on the night of election. And this is why. Florida has a postal vote system, but its rule is those postal votes must be counted before the day of the election. So we'll know exactly what that looks like, and they take no postal votes on the day of the election. So you've either got to get in the day before or it's not counted. So they will either counted all the votes that they've had going in and no votes coming after it. So I think we'll get a clear-cut result on what happens in Florida. And if Trump doesn't win Florida, in my opinion, he's a 99% chance of losing that election. So I think we will have some type of surety on the night it's just a question of what happens going after it. Oh, that's a great market to look out for, Jack. Thank you for that. Are there those sectors that stand to grow swiftly, regardless of a Biden win or a Trump win resulting from the November vote? What do you think of enabling yeah. technologies, for example, AI, augmented reality, big data, cloud computing? Yeah, I, th- I think I think tech well, tech does well, and I hate to sound like a broken record. I think tech doesn't work does well no matter what. Um, I think in terms of this enabling technology, I think it might even do better under a Biden uh, presidency because he intends to spend more on R&D. 
Um, and he talks about that as part of his package. So some of this newer or enabling technology may get a boost under a Biden administration. But I think that tech sector, that stay-at-home trade, and again, you know, that innovation will do well regardless of what presidency you have. And that's because there's simply a driving innovation amongst markets, amongst people, amongst everyone to continue to push us forward as a human race. And I don't think that that's under any presidency. If you want to talk about maybe some specific sectors that might do really well, mm. I think energy might do well under a, a, um, a Trump presidency. I think banks might do well only because they won't be subject to more regulation. On the flip side, uh, so on, on the other side, I think farm, uh, healthcare will do okay because you'll eliminate Medicare for all, which might be a Biden play going in as a presidency. I think that will do a, bit, a sector and that's undervalued. On the flip side, when we talk about healthcare, I think pharma will do badly. Um, uh, sorry, pharma will do well with Biden wins because Trump wants to lower the cost of medicines and align them with foreign prices. I think clean energy does really well under a Biden presidency. So, you know, there are you, the, often what we hear in markets is Trump good, Biden bad. And on the surface, that may play out, but you've got to look at it in terms of layers, in terms of specific sectors, and that's based around the policies of the two camps. But regardless, regardless, I will say this, that over the long term, I am a bull because they asked Warren Buffett once, and I'm paraphrasing in here, you know, what do you prefer, a Democrat or a Republican? This, I think, was in the first two years of Trump. And he replied, I've been around the eight presidents. Four Republicans, four Democrats, you know, long-term markets go up, I make money under any president, and that's how investors should be looking um, at this election. Oh, I'm glad we worked in Buffettology there somewhere. Now, you mentioned uh, energy stocks, so that leads us into Carl Icahn. And, you know, really, he's been known as the... A corporate raider almost because of his hostile takeover of the 1985 Trans World Airlines. So he definitely always has his eye on value, right? And he, yeah. he's mentioned that there are people who are going to be kicking themselves for not having snapped up inexpensive energy companies in 2020. Uh, even as he warns, you know, patience is going to be key here because he's anticipating a wave of bankruptcies in the energy sector. So if we look at this theme of energy bouncing back one day, when are you looking at, I mean, do you agree with that first off? And if so, when is that likely to happen? I mean, I know you said you like Carl before we started the segment, so I don't want to offend you and I don't want to offend Carl. <laughs> and he's a great Go man. For it. Go well. for it. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping we get an invitation back on your show. I think he's going to be out. I mean, sure, oh, you're breaking up. You're breaking up. The phone line's sorry, happening sorry, again. Sorry, sorry. Say that again, Jack. I think he's wrong. Okay, um, great. I think the long-term trends are just away from energy. I, I, I read a little bit about what he said. And I'm, you know, I'm assuming he's talking about oil. I'm assuming he's talking about gas. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, COVID has just accelerated our move towards re- renewables. Um, it's cut demand for that energy sector considerably. We're moving towards the electric car at a breakneck pace. Now, whether everybody gets an electric car or not, Maybe not, but we're certainly moving towards hybrids and removing that. And when we talk about oil, 60% of oil production is used for the car, and we're generally moving away from that. There's going to be a lot of 
bankruptcy, so we bankruptcy, so we could let be left with five or six. But I was listening to the BP chief economist just over the week on a Financial Times podcast. Mm. They're moving out of this sector. You know, they're not seeing the growth in this sector. They're not seeing anything going towards you know demand that we saw, you know, three, five or ten years ago. And in my opinion, we've reached peak oil demand. You know, peak oil demand is now in place. And it's just going to be a falling cliff going downward. The other thing that we must understand as investors, when we talk about this broad-based index ETF investments, you know, oil um, is the new tobacco. Right? I said this on your show, I think, four or five months ago. Yeah. No one wants it. Right? No one wants it. The millennials don't want it. And the fund managers can't have it in their ETFs or their S&P 500s or, or their indexes because it's, it's viewed as negativity, right? So you don't get that group buying you saw in this sector. And we are moving towards renewable energy quicker than any, any move towards energy in human history. So I just feel like that all the plays are against this. Um, and in this sector, in my opinion is a value trap. It presents itself as a value play, mm. but it's actually a value trap. So, you know, it's hard to argue with someone like Carl, but, you know, when you, when you break it down on the spreadsheet and you talk about the advantages and disadvantages of investing in a segment like this, then it's stacked up against you for it to do it. Now, maybe there are some, you know, little plays within there or, or one bright shining army but I just can't see it, particularly the advancements we're making in batteries, particularly the move towards solar and wind. Okay, it's not the best, it's not the cheapest, but one thing that we know about technology is it just gets better and better and better. And what we're now seeing is a unified move between um, business and government to move before, towards clean energy. I mean, I look at just the Chinese who are the biggest emitter and take it with what you want. But they want to be carbon neutral by 2060. Sure, that's 40 years away, but you're talking about the biggest emitter of the world, um, talking about carbon neutrality and also leading the world in renewable energy. So it's, it, it just doesn't play up for me when I look at, that, okay, where do I want to be? Do I want to be in energy or do I want to be in tech? Mm. You know, do I want to be in the square and that payment system, or do I want to be in energy? And, and there are other sectors that I believe you will do better out of. And, and, and in all fairness, energy's been rubbish for a long time. Mm. Um, and I just can't see it not being rubbish for a long time. All right, so going after those cheap energy companies might be a failed raid, according to Jack Cousy. Jack, thank you so much. Great insights. Lovely speaking with you, as always. Have a great day. Uh, To all you listeners, stay safe out there, and I'll see you next month. Thank you, Nick. Absolutely. Jack Cousy, Director of Strategy at VFS Group, right here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.